A heads up, this episode contains a discussion about suicide. I'm Noor Tagore. I'm taking over season three of the Barney's podcast. This is the show that usually celebrates fashion, style, culture, and personality. And not saying we're not going to do that now, but this season we're doing things a little differently. We're highlighting some of today's leaders on the forefront of pushing culture forward. And if you're about that, this is the podcast for you. We're kicking off this season with the truly wonderful Tan France. You know him from Queer Eye, where he is the fashion stylist with the gorgeous pompadour. But there is so much you might not know about him, like the fact that one of the clothing companies he used to own was geared towards Mormons, that he almost quit Queer Eye while on set, or that his grandfather made denim for Disney. And yes, of course, Tan had a favorite Disney look. It had different versions of Goofy all over on the back and on the front. It was a denim vest. It was awesome. Tan goes into depth about his life growing up and more in his new book. The title is so delightful. It's called Naturally Tan. And I couldn't wait to talk to him about how he became the person he is today. In this season of the podcast, like in past seasons, we start our conversations by asking guests what they're wearing. In this case, Tan's outfit had a whole story I wasn't expecting. I was wearing a white sneaker today and somebody wanted to hug me on the street, but she was very excitable and she was carrying two coffees, a cold coffee, uh, an iced coffee and a hot coffee. And she she started jumping around and started to give me a hug (laughs) and the cold coffee fell down my back and then hit the ground really, really hard. And so the coffee went everywhere all over my white shoes. So now my white shoes are dirty. And I describe them as the New York kiss on your clothes. I don't love that kiss. (laughs) (laughs) That's a kiss I will not accept. No, thank you. I have to ask, where exactly did you get your fashion sense from? Not a single person. I think I developed it over time. When I was a kid, if I wanted to really highlight what I was feeling, my clothes were the way to do it. In uh, my culture, it's not okay to say I'm feeling, as a boy, I'm feeling like I want to channel Paula Abdul today, or I'm feeling extra feminine in this moment. I Mm. want to convey my femininity as well as my masculinity. There's no such conversation that should ever happen in our homes. This was in the 80s. And so for me, it was a lot easier to just go and change my look. The first chapter of your book is called Chilvakamis. Yeah. Do you want to describe yeah, what it is? Chilvakamis exactly? is something that we wear in South Asian households and some Middle Eastern households. It's a long tunic that usually comes down to about your knee for a man. And then you wear a baggy MC Hammer style elasticated Love waist MC pant. Um, so it's meant to be modest. It's meant to be very modest. It doesn't show anything. I was so uh, engrossed in my culture and I love the Shilvakamis. I really do. However, I was a young gay guy who was so desperately uh, desperately wanting to express myself. And in my culture, you are not encouraged to express yourself. <laughs> you are encouraged to be like everybody else. Don't stand out from the crowd. Fit in. But I didn't know a way to articulate who I was inside. I didn't have the strength to articulate it. So I thought, well, I'm going to dress a certain way. And so I started playing with colour. I started playing with fabrics. I started making my own clothes. And then, yeah, it turned into a full-on career. I never thought it would, but it did. But it was also in your blood, technically. Yeah, my granddad owned a factory. He produced denim for Disney. Oh, denim for Disney. Yeah. <laughs> when I read that, I was fangirling on the inside because I'm, I'm a huge Disney Could fan. Could you imagine as a kid having 
like completely un- untold access to any Disney product you might want. Stop. Clothing product. Like I was changing up my look constantly. What was your favorite piece? It was probably a goofy vest. It had different versions of goofy all over on the back and on the front. It was a denim vest. It was awesome. You don't have it. I don't. I don't have any of that stuff anymore. I used to tell him I'm taking these things. And so I would take six or seven pieces every time I'd go and visit. What I really loved about learning about your story and how you came into fashion is almost seeing it as a way that you were able to maintain a sense of identity. Yeah. For you, you grew up with so many different identities. Yeah. How did you balance those identities in your style and then creating a sense of confidence from mm-hmm. it? I would change many, many times a day. I would put on colors that I knew would help me express who I was. And uh, and without ever having to be confrontational about it, By uh, with words, you, you get to be confrontational and, it, and that can be quite combative. When it was purely my clothes that I was wearing, Tan's playing. Tan's always playing. He's always playing with clothes. This is just another one of his ways of playing. And so it wasn't anything as combative as I need to talk about the fact that I'm not like my other brothers. I'm not the same as other boys in my community. And so it gave me a confidence to be able to wear what I wanted to wear without being a super disruptive in my household, but still sitting there on the sofa with the rest of my family thinking, I'm getting to portray a version of myself that I never thought possible. And I do it very silently. It's a silent protest. Was it always silent or did you ever have conversations with your parents where they would ask, why are you wearing this? And you would have a type of conversation with them. No, they would suggest that I change, but they would suggest that what I was wearing wasn't appropriate, especially when I went to people's weddings or birthdays. Mm. That's when I really wanted to express myself and stand out from the pack of brown boys that were in my community. And so uh, when they would suggest I'd change, I wouldn't say, no, I want to express my my feminine yeah. side it would just be i don't want to look like anybody else i you chose to raise me in the uk therefore i am very much british i'm going to express my british side which is a lot more western and sometimes uh, a little more fluid i used to make a lot of my own clothes from a very young age and i from 15 years old I yeah heard. from I, well i used to make them at 15 but i start like i could wait make something incredible at 15 i could make a full denim jacket or pair of jeans at 15 uh, to the standard like you would find in any retail store now. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Legit. Like it was really, really impressive. However, I could still sew something at the age of eight or nine. Like I could make you a dress. And so I wanted a black shirt, a black silk shirt with gold buttons so desperately. It was my dream. And the amount of times I was told, no, that's not appropriate. Because it, it was very Ricky Martin before Ricky Martin. It was just... You were way ahead of your time. Way ahead of my time. It was very flamboyant. No boy was seen anything like it. It, it was very feminine and I was told time and time again we will not get you the silk that you want for that black shirt because only girls wear that kind of product it was very Versace Versace Um, yeah and uh, that was not okay so that was the first time I realized oh this is not okay and I was very young I was probably seven do you ever remember being bullied in school or in your neighborhood for the way you were dressing thankfully no I had way bigger issues to deal with than the way I was dressing in my community it was more you are brown right that was the overriding issue that people had I lived in a very very white neighborhood and so I'm I'm glad that they didn't pick on my clothes or my homosexuality you've been very open in your book about the times where you've really struggled in your life I remember reading about that one 
really terrifying time、mm. where you're you were being bullied.、Uh, when I was eight or nine, my brother was eleven ish, and his name's Jim. We were trying to walk home from school. We had to walk on this particular street to get home.、Uh, there was no other way around it. And on this street, where the this gang of bullies who we've known for a long time, they were in their very late teens. Some of them possibly even early twenties, and we knew that they would attack us if we were to pass them. There were、uh, quite a few of them, seven or eight of them, and we. Had to go home. We were we had to get to mosque. If we didn't get to mosque, we'd get into trouble. So we had to get home, and so we just thought we were going to suffer through it. We lived literally around the corner. My brother was quite portly, and he wasn't really good at sport. He ran very very slowly, so he was like, "There's no way I'm going to be able to run on time." Whereas I was incredibly fast, and so we decided that as we got closer, I was going to run into oncoming traffic, which was very unwise,、uh, <laughs> and、uh, and get home. And he was going to stay and try and battle them until we got help. He did. I ran into my home.、Uh, my dad was sat there watching TV, and I screamed, they, they, "They've got Jim!" And so he knew instantly what that meant. He ran out of the house、uh, to save my brother, but not before、uh, he had taken, yeah, quite a beating. It was a really, really rough time. It was a very strong reminder of to my parents of why we do not go out of the house when we don't need to, because you're always at risk of being attacked. It made my stomach tight because I could I could see that I could feel it I could relate to that. Why was that the moment that stood out to you the most that you wanted to write about as opposed to others? If if people hurl abuse at me, I can handle it. I know how to handle it, and I um I make my I make amends or I reconcile it in my mind. When it's done to my family member or somebody I love, I find that really hard to handle. And looking back and thinking, I sh I should have stayed. And helped him. How did you maintain such a strong sense of identity in an environment that didn't didn't always encourage it? it? Yeah, I don't know. I would like to believe I got it from my mom, who's resolute about everything. She's strong willed. She's got a heart of stone, and I developed the same one for a very long time, <laughs> where things just wouldn't phase me. If I wanted to do something, I wanted to find a way to do it. If I wanted to go to fashion college, I was going to find a way to do it. I was always very resolute about the person I wanted to be, and I. I didn't see another option. I think I was so corrupted, as my family would say back in the day, by Western TV, where I would just assume I would watch a lot of American TV, and American kids are taught that they can do anything they want to do, and they're good at everything, even though most of them weren't. American kids are given so much encouragement, and I just thought, well, yeah, I feel like that, and I will do whatever I want to do, even though that was not the life I lived in my home. I remember. Do, do you do you know Bollywood movies at all? Indian movies were all about these love marriages, and I remember this one actor who I was obsessed with. He was so handsome, and I remember thinking, "I'm going to marry him one day." I didn't for a second think, "Why wouldn't I be able to marry a man?" It was just so matter of a, a matter of fact for me. If that's the person I loved, I would marry that person, and so I don't think there was ever a time when I didn't see that as an option. Is that the moment where your sister said, "I'm going、yeah. to marry him first"? Yes. <laughs> so my sisters at the time they were watching、uh, a movie called Mene Piyarkia, and there's this one scene where this guy, very popular actor called Salman Khan, he was known for being the ultimate hottie, and he was shirtless. And my sisters were like, "Oh, I'm going to marry him one day," and so innocently I said, "No, I'm going to marry him one day," and they were like, "No." <laughs> Boys do not marry other boys. Never ever say that again. And I was so hurt, thinking, "Gosh, why can't I say that?" 
If I love him, why wouldn't I be able to marry him? That makes no sense. Do you remember the next time you had a conversation with your sisters about that? <sighs> yeah, it was. It wasn't until I came out. I never brought it up again because I, I knew that it was f- so forbidden at that point, and I knew that, that it would not be received well if I'd mentioned it again. So it wasn't until I came out when I was seventeen. I was like, "Hey, you know that thing I said as a kid?" <laughs> you did you bring it up? Yeah, absolutely, I did. Oh my gosh! I wasn't joking about that. And and then I went into it. I was like, hey, listen, here's the thing. I, I can't marry a woman. I know that that's what I'm meant to do. I know that we're going to start looking at, we call them rishte, which is when uh, when your parents start to bring women to your home for you to consider as a potential life partner. Um, and I was like, I can't go through that process or I will go through that process just to keep them quiet until I have the strength to come out. Are you okay with sharing yeah. about like what that, what that moment was like coming out to your family? Yeah. I came out to my sister first. She was shocked and she cried a lot, but she was loving. She didn't know what to say. She, I mean, she of course she said a lot of the wrong things, but she didn't know to not say those things. She didn't know. Like, what were some of them? Like, God, what are we going to tell mom and dad? You can't tell mom and dad. I'm like, well, I have to tell them eventually. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, things like that. And and can you like can you just marry a woman and we'll just pr- like pretend. And I had to remind her, no, how would you feel if you had to marry right. a woman and just pretend for the rest yeah. of your life that you were attracted to her and that you loved her that way? And so once I explained it to her, she was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Of course, you wouldn't be able to do that. And so I think it was just a shocking process to know that the life that you planned out for your mm. sibling, and I'm the youngest, and I'm quite honestly the favorite of my extended family because I am the best Pakistani bride that you would ever <laughs> come across. Like my, I don't know what happened, but my life's training <laughs> apparently was to be the ultimate Pakistani bride. So let me explain our culture a little bit. This is so So this good. might be similar to yours. I don't know. I think ours are a little stricter than yours. Yeah. So when you are raised in a Pakistani household, the girl is trained her whole life to be the ultimate bride. That means you need to know how to cook. You need to know how to sew. <laughs> you need to know how to really clean your house well. And then make the, the perfect round. We call it roti, which is like a tortilla. <gasps> I love roti. Love roti. And I make it beautifully round. And so I, uh, so you're trained to do all these things. And to make roti takes a long time to learn to make a round roti. The rounder your, your roti, the better daughter, daughter-in-law no. you will be. Yes, yes. Um, and so it's a silly old wives' tale. And so I learned to cook from when I was a kid. My dad couldn't stand it. I would be in that kitchen when I was 10 or 11, watching my mom cook. He's like, why on earth would you want to learn how to cook? A boy doesn't do that. Like, to take care of yourself. Yeah, but that was, so, he was so a different generation. Like every one of his yeah. cousins and siblings, whatever. They, they didn't, they wouldn't understand why I would ever think to cook. But I was fascinated by it. And then by the age of 13, my sisters were little brats. They were very... <laughs> I hope they hear this. They they will, and they are brats. They were the ultimate feminists from a very early age, which feminism is not okay, was not okay in my culture. Men and women are equal, but different. A woman's woman's role is different in the home to a man's. So they would go against our culture and they would say, we're not learning to cook. If our brothers aren't learning to cook, why are we learning to cook? So they refused. And so my mom, to punish them, was like, okay, I'll I'll teach Chen how to cook. So I started cooking from a really early age. By the time I hit 13, I could cook for a an extended family of 30 or 40 people no a whole way. banquet of food and i still do a full is it feast. always pakistani food most often yes most often you know how when a family member comes from south, uh, south asia or the middle east 
we treat them like the ultimate royalty. Oh, 100%. It's, a, it's lovely. It's a, it's lovely hospitality that we have, and you don't let them do anything at least for a few days. Three like, days. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. then they wash dishes. Yes, exactly. We start, we ease them into it. However, with my family, because I am known as the cook of the family, I will land back from the US and it takes me about 14, 15 hours. And my mom will say, okay, should we go make roti? First thing, I'm there making a full curry and roti in the morning because she sees me as her perfect daughter. <laughs> I was the perfect bride. People missed out. I could have made such a great bride for a Pakistani husband. How does she feel seeing you on TV? Uh, I think she's very confused. I, I went to her house. I was getting ready. And I was like, Mom, I'm going to be on the show that you're watching right now. It was BBC News. I said, I'm going to watch out in half an hour. I'm going to be on there. I'm heading out there now. I was in England for press. And she was like, what do you mean you're going to be on this show? I was like, I'm, I'm on a show. Remember I told you I was on a show. And so I'm promoting it on this show that you're watching. Don't change the channel. And so I went to do this uh, interview and I came back. She was like, what were you doing on the BBC News? Why would you be on that? And I was like, because I'm on a show. <laughs> and she was like, but it's like a proper show. I was like, yes, a show? it's a proper show. I still think she thinks it's this tiny little thing that I've made up and I've recorded on my rec uh, my video recorder. Oh, She's man. very impressed. She's very impressed by my skills. So yeah, I don't think she really can comprehend what's happening. There was also a billboard in Manchester, which is where she lives. And I think that she was confused by it. Like, <laughs> why is Tan on that? Why did he stick his face on that poor person's face? Oh, man. Yeah, I don't think she really I'm so grasp. sorry. I think that's so cute, though. It's so cute. So I heard you're working on a couple of new TV shows. I am. It's incredible. And the show is called Next in Fashion. Next in Fashion. We are looking for the next major, major designer. I am a major fan of other shows that have been around. Uh, yeah, what's the difference? The difference is these are established designers who are working as ateliers or they have their own brands that you see in many places already. They are just, they're already there. They're already killing it. They're just a step away from being a an actual name name. Got um, it. And so, so the work that you see on this show is incredible. It is world-class. The final runway show I cried. I cried really? so hard. Are you was... an easy crier? No, not at all. You've only you mean seen you me... don't cry during your show? No, you've seen me cry once on Queer Eye <laughs> only. Uh, the other boys cry every episode pretty much. I've only... I, I told you Heart of Stone, it's from my mom. And so watching that runway, I felt so proud. I can't believe I get to be a part of this. I, I truly can't believe that I get to sit here and do this for work. Like it mm. felt just so humbling and beautiful. In your purpose. Yeah. And it, it, if you had told me two years ago that I would be uh, in entertainment and I would have a show like Queer Eye that brings such positivity in the world, and then also a show like Next in Fashion that's just a passion project. I have three little projects right now. That's kind of nuts. So beautiful. Are you pinching yourself? Every day. I still can't believe it every day. And my husband is here with me in New York. He travels with me a lot, but not to New York. And he sees the reaction on the street. And I am truly surprised a lot of the time. I forget. I'll go out first thing in the morning with him from the hotel. And we're walking down the street. And then somebody will say, hey, Tan. And I'm like, oh, shit, yeah. I'm very, very, very lucky. But you never intended to go into television. You no. were in fashion for a very long time. Yeah, and I never wanted to be in television. Okay, wait, but you know I'm I'm waiting for the third one. Uh you are actually the first person I'm telling completely. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, I am doing something that is a dream. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. So, 
Netflix uh, has something called Netflix as a joke. It's their comedy channel. Yeah. And I did something about a year ago with Pete Davidson where I took him shopping. Yeah. It was a comedy skit for SNL. And then I did it with Hassan Minaj. I loved that one. I loved that you guys were talking about your culture and your background casually and not having to over explain it because yeah. it was just like, this is us. This is us, yeah. The Hassan one seemed to connect so strongly with people, um, especially with people of color. They just really gravitated, to, uh, gravitated towards it. So this show is basically a season of me taking the biggest comedians on <laughs> the planet shopping. And it's just... It's, oh, this is it's a, basically a comedy so show. So genius. Uh, so this show... What is it called? It's called Dressing Funny with Tan France. Oh yeah. my gosh. Well, speaking of Tan France, I yes. feel like you should tell us the story behind your name. I want to explain my name. My name is Tanvir Safdar. Somebody accused me of changing my name to make it easier for white folk. Mm. Um, that is not the case. Even my family doesn't call me Tanvir. Nobody has called me that ever. My name has always been Tan. So it wasn't to please uh, Caucasians. My mom calls me that. And then uh, Franz is my husband's name. And it was a real point of pride to take his name. We had fought so hard for the opportunity to be, be married as men. And so, yeah, it just felt right to take his, his name. His last name's really Franz. Yeah, Rob You Franz. really just got that lucky. I know. Isn't that nice? And it has a lovely ring to it. Tan Franz really is a lovely name. It's not my original name, but I love it very much. I'm very grateful for it. But I mean, it's it. your name. It's now my name. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's why I'm called Tan Franz. It's because it made sense for the life I have now. I love that. How do you go about styling people in general and then styling your loved ones? It's very hard. <laughs> Let me tell you this. I think that people think it's so simple. I'm on a, I'm on Queer Eye and you're just putting them in clothes. I think my, my job is incredibly difficult because everybody's bodies are shaped differently. Right. And this is no shade to anyone we have on the show, but we're not casting people who are model size. We're not casting the guy who's 5'11 and he's a size medium waist and he's got a 32 inseam. That's not what we're doing. That would make my life so easy because then I could go to any store and say, these clothes are all made for him. It's the easiest job in the world. No, we are getting getting real people and every episode is a new challenge based on the body that this person has. And when you throw females into the mix, it gets even more complicated because then it's not just their height and their weight, it's also their cup size and what might be appropriate for their bust. And that throws in a whole other set of tricks for me uh, to, to bring in. And so it's, it's actually a, a complicated process. And then for this new show, Dressing Funny, trying to do that whilst keeping up with the best comedians in the US. Could you imagine that pressure? Like, hey, Tan, you've got to try and keep up with this person and be as f- and make sure that this is super funny, all whilst making sure that they look stellar by the end of this episode. One of the most intimidating processes I've ever, okay, ever Okay, wait, been you're through. right. I didn't even realize that because it's just like they're throwing you one-liners and you're like, I got to be on my toes. Do yep. you think you are more funny now after... S- after filming the show. No, I realized that I'm nowhere near as funny as I thought I might be. Um, <laughs> here's the thing. Actually, I was having this conversation with my husband at brunch. I'm going to tell you something uh, very honest. I cried at brunch this morning. I don't cry very often. I'm not very emotional, but I cried because I can't believe what my life is and look how lucky we are. Like, like tears of joy. Yeah, like just 
tears of shock. Like I can't believe that we get uh, that we get to live this yeah. life. Um, but I was crying because I was saying it's so the pressure to try and keep up with everything that's going on and always yeah. be Tan France is actually very hard. If we can talk real, real for a second, I would love that. I think that people assume that the Tan France they see on the show is Tan France all day, every day. It's not. Like, of course, there are times when I'm really down. Of course, there are times when I don't want to be all jazz hands and play. Like, I'm I'm a person like everybody else. If uh, something's going wrong, I feel it. If something's going great, yes, I'm t- in Tan France mode. But I am at that level of excitement because I'm filming the show. It's very much me. And I feel like it is usually my resting state to be joyful and happy and playful. But there are times when I am actually going through stuff and I am super stressed. And you know this life all too well at this point where your schedules are not your own. The majority of the time, I have no idea what my next day is. Oh, yeah. My assistant sends me my schedule. in my bones. Yeah. It just is so fast paced and you don't know what your day to day is going to look like. And so when people see you on the street and you say hi, but it's not, you're not as excited as they want you to be. You can't have a bad day. You can't have a bad day. I hope you choose to talk about that more. And I'm so happy you mentioned this now because there was a part in your book where when you moved to Utah and you had a modest fashion line Mm. and you were at a peak where you were so busy and you were successful to the term of what successful would mean with business, right? Yeah. And then there was... There was a moment where you had pulled your car over and you called Mm -hmm. your husband. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. This was just a bad time because of the stress of my businesses. And I had three businesses at the time. All of them were thankfully successful. With with great success in business comes great stress and great responsibility. Mm. I, I was struggling for a while thinking, I don't know how I can keep up with this level. And so... I had told my husband many times, I don't know how much longer I can do this. I don't know what the out is. I can't just quit the businesses because that's not my world. I can't just walk away. Mm -hmm. I have employees who depend on me for their their income, their livelihood. And so I can't just walk away no matter how stressed I am about it now, no matter how hard this is. And so at one point I saw no other option other than suicide. And so uh, I called my husband and uh, it was a really, a really hard time. I was in the car on my way home uh, and I was crying hysterically in the the car. And I had, there's a bridge that I have to cross to get home from my old office. Um, And so I called him and I said, I need you to talk to me. And he was like, why, what's going on? He was working at the hospital. He works at the hospital. Um, And I tried not to bother him at all. He's busy saving children's lives and he doesn't need to be worrying about, worrying about my drama. So it's not very often I call, but I called him and said, look, I'm, I'm, I, I, I want to drive this car off the bridge and I need you to tell me why that this, this I'm being stupid. And, and I pulled over because he was like, pull over, pull over. I just need you to talk to me, mm-hmm. listen to my voice. Um, and so, yeah, it was a really, really hard time. I've never felt the feelings that I felt at that time where I thought that I can't see, I can't see the wood for the trees. I can't see a way out of this. Do you remember the thing that he said that made like maybe was a click in your head? It wasn't one thing. He uh, he had made it very clear, which is so sappy at, at this point. You're going to think uh, this is so sappy. But for me, it was very grounding. He was like, I can't do this without you. Like, mm. I, you are my husband. You are my person. Um, uh, if you do this, 
I, I can't live without you. He's basically saying, I would have to do the same. You're forcing me to do the same as what you're about Damn. to do. Um, Damn. And that's that how just... we feel about each other. Like uh, my greatest fear is that he will pass um, and that uh, I won't be able to function without him. Um, and so he was like, you know what you're going to do to mm. me. Please don't do this. I know you. we can get through this. You're going to come home. You are never going to go to the office again. We are going to shut it down. And I was like, that's not the way it works. I can't just do that. So he was like, all I need to do is get home. I'm going to leave work early now. I will meet you home in a few minutes. You do, you get home. And so I did. And he held me as I cried in bed for hours and hours and hours. And I didn't go back to work for a couple of days. And then I was like, okay, it's time for me to sell these businesses. I can't do this anymore. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Of that course. takes a lot of courage of for writing about it. Mm. I can't imagine what that process was, mm. but there's so many people who need to hear from you. Yeah, thanks. What advice do you have for people who are going through a similar situation and need to hear from somebody who had gone through the same? Speak more openly to your to whoever you can trust more than anybody. And if you don't have somebody, there are uh, support lines that you can call who mm-hmm. where people truly are willing to listen to your story and find out why you're feeling this way. Talk and be completely candid about exactly how you're feeling. I had mentioned to my husband that I was feeling really down. I would I had mentioned that I was stressed. But I didn't really articulate just to what level of stress I was under. And it wasn't until that moment. And then I started talking about it with him regularly. And it it gave me such comfort to just be able to say, this is what's happening. Find somebody that you truly trust and you can tell completely implicitly exactly how you're feeling mm. and, and know that they're going to listen. I mean, your life is very busy today as well. Yeah. How would you compare the stresses of running three businesses and the stresses of running your life business right now? Oh, okay. (laughs) Here's the honest answer. The businesses were very hard. They had all become successful. However, if things went wrong, that was my money on the line. If things go wrong here... (laughs) Netflix's reputation is on the line if it all goes away I thankfully I was retired this is in the book also but I was retiring I sold my businesses and I retired and thankfully the businesses were successful enough for me to be able to you did not want this show I did not want this show you did not want to be on Queer Eye until even on set week week three I tried to quit I booked my flight to leave why okay uh, honestly honestly I didn't think I was cut out for television. I didn't think I was cut out for entertainment. And now, you, <laughs> and now, now you I've got a few. Shows? Yeah. Um, l- let me tell you this. I don't know how strict of a family you have when it comes to religion. But in my family, we didn't really do photos. It wasn't encouraged. Um, um, we don't really do... Uh, we did family, yearly family photos oh, that picture people. Oh, okay. We <laughs> were definitely not. But we were. Uh, our sect of the religion was a little more strict. Yeah. Um, and so photos were f- kind of forbidden. And so we didn't have photos. So to go from a person who doesn't take photos to, hey, let's put you on set and put these seven video cameras in your face. Like, we're going to film you, not just photograph you. That's it. really, really intimidating. I didn't have a public Instagram before then. I wasn't public anywhere. I was a very private person and I didn't like my photo taken, let alone film. And so to to go from never being on camera and never having desire to be on camera to then being on set with 30 yeah. something people watching on the first day, it was my solo scene. The first day we shot Queer Eye on my own, was it, it was my solo scene and there's a whole team of people around. And I've got to act like I've been doing this my whole life and I 
lead the scene. And I remember crying so hard in the bathroom every 20 minutes or so. I'd be like, oh, I just need to use the restroom. Cry real hard and then come back out. Like, you can do this. You've got to do this. Like, you've committed to wow. do this. And then finally I'd cried so much <laughs> those few weeks that I I, I was going to quit the, the show. Because I thought, I can't possibly be good at this. I don't know what I'm doing. And so I spoke to the executive producer on the show and and he convinced me, you're everything we ever wanted you to be. You're just honest. You don't know this stuff, which is great. Like you're talking to this person, not like a show business person. You're talking to this person like a human. And that's why you're connecting. And your vulnerability was your biggest strength. Yeah. And so I think that's why when people meet me, they're they're surprised. I think they were expecting that what they see on the show is a character that is truly me. What you see on the show is absolutely what you get in real life because I don't know how to be anything else. I'm not a performer. Yeah, but I also want to ask if if you would have seen more people who were like you on television, do you think that would have made it any easier? Oh, let me tell you this. So uh, the reason why I didn't want the job initially, so it was offered to me and I said yes. And then very shortly after, I was like, mm-mm. Actually, before I was even offered the audition, I said, no, thank you. And that's because the thought of representing a community is a lot of responsibility. It really is a lot of responsibility. And But I did think, wait, I could be the first one, actually my husband reminded me of this, that I could be the first one who really does get to represent in a very positive way mm. uh, on, a, on a very large platform. There have been South Asian uh, gay men before on TV, but we knew that this was going to be on a global platform, uh, Netflix. And so to represent in a positive way felt really enticing, but also felt really stifling. But... Now it's the it's the reason I love what I do so much. I the DMs I get, the 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 letters I get from people all over the world, not just South Asia, saying you represent a version that I have never seen on TV of me. I finally feel like I'm not alone. I know I don't yeah. know you personally, but I don't feel alone. I feel like I can live a life that I never thought I could live. And quite honestly, I, I did in my very early, 20, early 20s, I thought, oh, maybe I'm going to have to get married to a woman. Uh, and, but that can't be. So the, my only option is suicide. I, I can't uh, I can't marry a woman. My family, there's no way they'd allow me to be married to a man. So I will live a happy life until then. And then that's it. I love that I'm in a position now to encourage young uh, Asian, South Asian men and everybody else who may be struggling to say, you can live a very happy life, um, an incredibly fulfilled life. I am a very, very proud South Asian gay man who's been married for 11 years and has a beautiful marriage. There is a life outside of the community you might know and that, that feels so stifling right now. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I, let's end this on a little bit of a lighter yeah, note. Yeah, what do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. France. Yeah. Just, you know, to clarify here on the Barney's podcast, did you in fact name the French tuck after yourself? Okay. Let's set the record straight. We have straight. to set the record straight. No. I don't know where the term French tuck comes from. I wish I could take credit for that. <laughs> no, I've been doing it since I was like 16, 17. So yeah, I thought, well, the French tuck is going to make my legs look more proportionate. So I started doing it. I didn't know what it was called. And I started on the show and I was doing it on every episode. And then finally, one of the producers, the executive producer was like, what is that thing you keep doing? Should we call it like the name? So at least when you're doing it, you can explain what it is. I was like... I don't know what it's called. Let me Google it real quick. No. And that came up. And then that's what came up yeah. when you Googled it. Yeah. Oh, man. I know. So it. W- I can't take credit for it, but oh. I will happily accept the fact that I've made it a more popular term. 
Well, thank you so much. Thank you for all the firsts. Yeah, uh, you have got secrets. more firsts than anyone else. We're siblings, really. Yeah. You're like, I was, I was more inclined to share. I'm so humbled and honored. Thank you so much, Thank Tan. You, You're love. wonderful. Thank you. You're wonderful. Bye, my love. You can get Tan's book, Naturally Tan, anywhere books are sold. The Barneys podcast is hosted by me, Noor Tagori, and produced by Barneys and Transmitter Media. This episode was produced by Jessica Glazer. The show is executive produced by Anna Deutsch, Greta Cohn, and me. And it's edited by Lacey Roberts. If you like what you're hearing, rate and review the show. It really helps other people find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening. On a more serious note, we wanted to mention one more thing. If you or someone you know is having suicidal thoughts, you can speak with someone confidentially by contacting the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or the Crisis Text Line at 741-741. Both provide free anonymous support 24 hours a day, 7 days a week.